Hello, everyone. Um, yes, um, as Scott said, our um, Bible reading today is from Ephesians 5, 21 um, through to 6, 9. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as, the, as Christ is head of the church, his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one has hated his own body, but he feels, feeds and cares for it as Christ does the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be, in re and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Children, obey your parents as in the Lord. For it is right. Honour your father and mother, which is the first commandment, with a promise that you may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life in, on the earth. Fathers, do not exasperate your children. Instead, bring them up in training and instruction of the Lord. Slaves, obey your earthly masters with respect and fear and with sincerity of heart, just as you would obey Christ. Obey them not only to win their favour in when their eye is upon you, but like slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from your heart. Serve wholeheartedly as if it were serving the Lord, not men, because you know that the Lord will reward anyone for whoever, everyone for whoever good he does whether he is slave or free. And masters, treat your slaves in the same way. Do not threaten them, since you know that he, do, he who is both their master and yours in heaven, and there is no favouritism with him. Well, good morning, friends, and it's good to be here, ready to work with a some ways controversial passage, but something that we'll hopefully find also very good for us as well. And thanks, Tara, for reading that section of God's Word. Let us come before our Lord in a word of prayer. Let us pray. Our Lord God, we thank you for your gift of your Word. And we pray this morning as we think carefully about it, uh, you'd help us to understand it better and also have the resolve to put these good things into practice in our lives. And we pray for your help in that process and thank you that uh, you do help us through your spirit. And we pray for these things through Jesus' name. 
Amen. Well, have you heard the uh, tale about the porcupines? You might have. On a cold night, a group of porcupines were huddled together to stay warm. But there was a problem. The problem was that they were porcupines. Uh, their spines made it a bit too uncomfortable for them to be that close. So what did they do? Well, they moved apart again, and then they got cold once again as well. And so after shuffling backwards and forwards for a while, they eventually managed to find a distance that wasn't too cold, and they weren't getting too prickled. And in the tale, that distance was called decency and good manners. It's almost like the, the Goldie, Goldilocks distance, isn't it? Not too close, not too far away, not too heavy, not too light, not too hot, not too cold. Uh, did you like that little one? Yeah, it's good. Okay, well, this uh, sermon today, it's going, to be, it's going to be more, you'll be glad to know, about just simply decency and good manners. Today... Uh, we're given the privilege to respond to God's good word in faith and obedience. But that little tale still makes me think a bit about uh, life together, both as Christians within our church and within our families, and how life together can be really good sometimes. We're not out in the cold. But at the same time, we risk, don't we? We risk prickling each other when we get a bit too close together and annoy each other. And so today we're going to look at God's word carefully at what Paul says about how to live well together by the spirit of God and to do this for the glory of God. Now the context of this um, passage today can be traced back to chapter 5 verse 18 where Paul says, do not get drunk on wine, instead be filled with the Spirit. And in the following verses, Paul gives a couple of examples of how that Spirit-filled life will take shape. Uh, by speaking to one another in psalms, hymns and spiritual songs, singing, making music in their hearts, in our hearts, giving thanks to God. And our passage begins today as another example of spirit-filled lives, but in a more household context. And so we see in verse 21, Paul says, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. A spirit-filled life is going to involve submitting to one another out of reverence or, if you like, fear of Christ. Well, what were the first century Christians to make of this idea of submitting to one another. And what are we to make of this idea of submitting to one another again today? What does the word even mean? Well, it means place under or subordinate, and that's in the active voice. But here the, the verb's actually in the middle voice, and it's something that uh, for people voluntarily to do. And it could be translated order oneself under or submit or subject oneself voluntarily. It, if you break the word down, it, it literally means arrange under. And, for example, we could think about submission of soldiers in an army 
under those of a superior rank. And we see in the following sections that the divinely ordered relationships that Paul challenges God's people to submit to. Wives to husbands, children to parents, and slaves to masters. Now, it's understandable that some people don't really like the idea of submitting or submitting to an authority. And so some commentators have tried to read this in a way that says uh, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ is submission, mutual submission, in exactly the same way. For example, a, a wife would submit to a husband and a husband would to submit to his wife in exactly the same way. But that's not the same thing as understanding submission to one another within the ordered relationships that are set out in the following verses. And there's a couple of problems with that view to think of it as this mutual submission in exactly the same way. Number one, the word arrange under or submit has the idea of coming under someone else's authority. For example, the soldier coming under the commander. And so it rules out the idea that suddenly uh, George General is going to now come under Private Ryan so that they'll both take their turns at being the general and the private. No, the, the actual word excludes that scope of the ideas. Secondly, uh, none of the relationships where this verb appears in the New Testament are reversed. And so husbands are not told to be subject to their wives. Parents are not told to be subject to their children. Nor slaves, masters to slaves, nor government to citizens. And dis disciples are not told to be subject to demons. Paul's not promoting mutual submission in exactly the same way. He's noting that Christian lives, spirit-filled lives will be marked by submission within ordered relationships which he deals with as the passage unfolds. And so having laid some foundations, Paul teaches about this topic of submission throughout the household table in 5, 22 to 6 verse 9. And he begins with marriage, husbands and wives. Now I'm going to make a remark about uh, understanding this idea intellectually the challenge before us is not that complicated to understand wives submit to your husbands husbands love your wives these things we can understand intellectually pretty well but emotionally the challenge before us can be tricky can't it on account of the complexity of relationships and on account of sin within a fallen world. And so the reality that consistently living out these biblical principles well takes some effort and the Spirit of God to help us to do that. But let's just take these things one at a time and let's start from verse 22. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church his body, of which he is the saviour. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. The idea of wives submitting to their husbands involves 
her placing herself voluntarily under her husband's authority. It could be translated, submit oneself. The idea is someone voluntarily doing this. It's not about a husband crushing or destroying his wife's will. Paul appeals to wives to submit themselves to their husbands as something of their own accord. Okay, that's fine, but who is this husband? Who is the one that made his role such that the wife is called to submit to him? Well, wives submitting to husbands uh, and the whole idea of this makes more sense within the overall teaching of the Bible from the very beginning. For in Genesis chapter 2, verse 20 to 25, we see that God makes man and he makes woman as a helper suitable for the man. And Paul refers to that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 9. And we see there in Genesis God's created order. Man is created, then the woman's created as a helper suitable and there to rule together over the creation. But in the steps that lead up to the fall and their sin reflect a reversal of God's created order. For in the lead up to the fall we see that the serpent or creation, if you like, leads the woman and the woman leads the man and when they fail to live by God's word God calls the man to account and so we see the steps leading to their sin and judgment reflect a reversal of God's good created order. This is also obvious in Genesis chapter 3 verse 9 for God calls the man to account. He doesn't call the woman to account first It's the man who's called to account for what has happened. He's the leader and the buck stops with him. And the man takes full responsibility for the situation, doesn't he? He owns up to his lack of leadership in the family and he acknowledges his part in submitting to his wife. He owns the consequences that followed for which he is held accountable. No, he doesn't do any of that, does he? Instead, as we know, Adam, the strong man, the big man, blames his wife, sadly. And Eve blames the serpent. The Apostle Paul picks up on this created order theme in a number of places within the New Testament, but it's outside the scope of this sermon to delve into the section in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 or in 1 Timothy chapter 2. Suffice to say, Paul takes that God-created order that I've referred to and applies it to the relationships for Christian people and also the church. So we see from creation an order that God has established. It's one that, in which man is clearly placed in the position of supreme responsibility for the family. That role of supreme responsibility is described in this passage today as headship. The man is the head of the family. That's the idea of verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. 
Now, as mentioned, Paul references creation, the created order, in verse 31 in this section. But the relationship of the church to Christ is the key model for wives to follow. The reason given why wives should put themselves under their husband's authority has to do with the fact that the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. Wives are called to submit to their husbands as the church submits to Christ. We see that in verse 24. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. It's interesting to note that Paul's saying here, submit to your own husbands. It's not just husbands in general out there. And when he writes, submit to their husbands in everything, it's important to note that Paul doesn't start to demark a list of jobs to divvy up between the husband and the wife. He doesn't get prescriptive here. Instead, he focuses on their relationship. Perhaps he could say he's challenging the wife to first have a submissive attitude to her husband. That comes first. And then to take that next important step of putting that submissive attitude into practice and therefore making submission to her husband's headship a reality, something that's an actual fact and a way of being together, not simply leaving submission at the door as a good idea. Now, in thinking about this teaching and how it's to be put into actions today, how we can apply this biblical teaching in our situation, it's probably worth asking some questions. Is Paul challenging the wife to give her husband more space, more room to set the tone and direction for family life? Is that what he's challenging the wife to do? Is Paul challenging the wife to get behind her husband's leadership, to endorse him, to reward it and to encourage him so that he's increasingly active and strong, involved in making decisions for the good of the family and as the head of the family. Finally, in appealing to wives to be submissive to their husbands, is Paul discouraging their wives from attacking their husbands when their husband starts to begin some new positive and firm steps showing more strength and leadership? Is he challenging the wife to not do that? Sometimes patterns can form where husbands' authority may not even be recognised. Some Christian women may not even be thinking about their husband in these terms that are set before us today, in which case this is a good little opportunity for growth, isn't it? They may undermine their husband's authority, wittingly or unwittingly. But what do Christian wives want from their husbands? Do they want their husbands to be hobbled in their leadership? Is that really what they want for their families? Now, I recently read about some husbands who made some changes to increasingly take on more of their headship roles. The husbands took a stand from being too compliant and non-participating, and they began to assert some more leadership 
and also not retreat from that stand. Even in the face of some of resistance and anxiety from their wives, their wives weren't initially too motivated to be particularly submissive to their husbands. But after their husbands stepped up, some of the wives realised that their submission was fruitful and they responded with some of the following comments, which I found interesting and I think you'll probably find some of these comments interesting as well. This is what some of the wives said when they began to be more submissive to their husbands. It is so nice to finally have a man for a husband. Another said, I was so happy to see him stand up for himself. I couldn't help fighting him. It was automatic. At the time, I was hoping and hoping he would not get concerned about my anxiety and the things I said. And another lady said, if he can keep on being a man, then I can be a woman. Now, I put those quotes out there because I was struck by the fact that although these wives were not initially campaigning hard for their husbands to exercise more leadership, more headship, that is a way of saying they didn't find being submissive came naturally to them or easily, but nonetheless, they were grateful when their husbands took on more of the headship role and they found more fruit and that it was positive for them to be submissive wives. Well, I found that interesting. I, I don't know whether you will or not. But this brings us now to the role of the husband. The challenge for the husband to love his wife. And I'll just read down to, to verse uh, 28. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. Well, we know that Christ loved his church for he laid down his life for the church. In verse 25, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And this is the greatest example of sacrificial love and it sets the standard for the love that the husband is to have for his wife. Husband is not called to rule over his wife, but to love his wife. Verse 26 refers to synonymous action, making holy and cleansing by the washing with water through the word, which likely refers to the way the church came into being, as we see at the start of Ephesians in chapter 1, verse 13, these this church was included in Christ when they heard the word of truth, the gospel, and having believed, were given the Holy Spirit. 
And in this section, Paul also reflects on the future of the church in verse 27. Christ's goal for the church is that she is presented as a radiant church, holy and blameless, which I take from this, the church makes it to the end, unmoved from her hope held out in the gospel. And in the time now, it will be characterised by sin and struggle, and each of us individually as part of the church will have our own sin. But in the age to come, when the church, when the kingdom comes fully, the church will be received as a radiant church, holy and blameless. It'll be seen then in in forgiven terms, the clean terms. In verse 28, Paul returns to the encouragement to the husband and here he underscores one's love for oneself as the way to think about the, the pathway or the right way to love one's wife. In verse 28, in this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. In summary, love your neighbour as yourself we care for ourselves and this provides another standard by which the husband should think about when it comes to loving their wives. Having said that, sacrificial love, it's easy to give lip service to. It's very easy just to talk about sacrificial love, but it's a, it's a lot harder to put self-giving love and forgiveness into practice in all areas of married life. In terms of Christ. Love for the church. Paul notes that the, the ultimate marriage is that of Christ and the church, which he describes as a mystery. And as one commentator put it, when God designed marriage, he already had Christ and the church in mind. Christ and his redeemed people have always been in view from the start. That's the perfect marriage, Christ and the church, the one which we're to take our, as, as our model Paul closes this section devoted to husbands and wives in verse 33. However, each one of you also must love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. The love word here is the agape word used for husbands to love their wives as noted in the same way that Christ loves the church. It's a deep, profound love. And the word for respect here for the the wives is actually the phobos word. It's the fear word. It's in the middle voice, let the wife fear her husband. And it's similar to the, the phobos word in verse 21, submit to one another out of reverence or fear for Christ. But what kind of fear is this? Well, it's her voluntary response which recognises his God given position as the head of the family. But Paul is not calling the wife to be a husbophobe. He does not intend for her to have an allergic reaction to him. This is not some kind of husband allergy that she's to have. No, it's not that kind of fear. It's a fear of respect or reverence for her husband. But nonetheless, the fear word is used here. And wives are called to take that approach. Paul actually gives more words to the husbands to weigh up than words to the wives. Husbands are to think about what it means to relate to their wives from Christian principles. And the guiding principle here is love. It's not about crushing the wife's will and ruling over her. 
as we think about applying this to our situation, once again, we could ask a few questions. To what extent does the husband take his wife's interests into account? To what extent does he love her practically? Does he ask her to just look after the kids and clean the house on Saturday while he goes to his mate's place to watch the big game and provide no scope for her to have a rest from the kids and perhaps to see her friends? Does he just think of his own interests? When my wife asked me how I felt about her going to Hamilton Island with her mum and some other family members, I told her I felt terrible about it and that I, likes it, I like it better when she looks after us. I told her that because I didn't want to lie to her and she doesn't like it if I lie to her either. But I didn't stop there. I also told her that I was glad she was going to have a nice time away on a tropical island with her mother and family and that we'd cope. I stopped short of saying that we didn't need her anyway because that wouldn't be true. And I did let her know that I was happy for her to go and that she deserved some fun time out and a nice time away. And that was one of my better performances, one of my better stories, but why would I share with you one of the ones in which I look bad? A good question to ask is, will the husband give himself in loving service for his wife so that she can be the best that she can be, the best that God intends her to be? Now, many people would like to have marriages that are in good shape, and I happen to be one of them, just as many people like the idea of being in good health. But in the same way that we can long to look for the perfect diet that includes plenty of fried chicken and hot chips, so we can also look for the perfect marriage that includes plenty of suiting ourselves. If only we could find the awesome marriage where my wife can steamroll my leadership and I don't have to love her. Yeah, that would be a great marriage, wouldn't it? No, uh, that kind of approach is like trying to find that awesome, elusive healthcare program that involves plenty of fried chicken and chips and no exercise. To which my wife said to me, what's wrong with that? That was quite an entertaining moment though. Now, from what we've seen from the passage today, these principles from God's word guide a good marriage. And it's going to involve both parties putting in some effort to key things, submission and love. And these things become expressions of a spirit-filled life. Now, our next sections are shorter. Paul deals with children and parents. I'll pick it up in verse 6. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honour your father and your mother, which is the first commandment with a promise, so that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth. Several things are worth noting in this section. Number one is that Paul addresses children as legitimate members of the church. There's no hint here that they're regarded as outsiders or second-class citizens. Even if their childlike faith is still in the process of becoming more informed 
and mature they are talked to as members of the people of God, members of the new covenant. And so children are seen in these terms, albeit with a faith that's still young and still forming. Number two, when Paul appeals to children to obey their parents, both parents are on view. Fathers are later singled out for special mention. But they're encouraged to be obedient. Disobedience is looked down upon within the scriptures. In Romans chapter 1, verse 30, disobedient children are listed in terms of Gentile depravity. And in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 2, children's disobedience is regarded as a sign of evil in the last days. Disobedience is not promoted or rewarded. The verb obey is one that denotes absolute obedience. And this is different from the, the terms for the wife's submission to husband, which is a voluntary situation. It's obedience in the Lord, and it's to grow out of their junior walk with the Lord and their, their attempts to bear the fruit of the Spirit. But it's certainly obedience to both parents that's on view. And the reasons are listed. This is my third point. It's in the Lord, it's right or fitting, and it's linked with the Old Testament wisdom, the wisdom from the Ten Commandments. <clears throat> Here we note that Paul, although he's reminded the Ephesians earlier in chapter 2 that they're not under the Old Covenant and in the way that Israel was under the Old Covenant, yet nonetheless the wisdom of the law can apply to members of the new covenant and this is a good example of an application of that wisdom paul notes the consequence of obedience to parents that it may go well with you and that you may enjoy long life on the earth paul gives a christian rendering to the commandment saying long life on the earth as opposed to long life in the land which was a reference to the the promised land of the old covenant but here he's saying there's good consequences for life now as children seek to obey their parents. It's interesting to even talk about this topic of parenting and children obeying. I'm always impressed with how sensitive parents can be about the topic of their their kids and parenting. One of the quickest ways to raise tensions between people is to involve a child. They're a nice trigger to raise just about any parent's anxiety. Having reared five children through their primary years, we've accepted a long time ago that children's obedience doesn't always come easily. That's, that's just a, a datum in my life. And kids are also different. But in our situation, uh, we've worked hard at coaching them into obedience from a very early stage, from very early on with mixed results to come when they're called, to come on the first time. And that took a bit more to get. To use their manners when they speak, and Joanne and I have been united in our coaching and coaching the kids into their obedience. But it's worth noting that obedient children are different from godly children to the extent that you could have well-behaved kids who are not really showing any signs of life of loving the Lord. But we found that 
uh, coaching in obedience has helped us to get our kids to have a hearing for the gospel and to hear about the Lord Jesus and to come to know him as well. And so we've not simply aimed for obedience but also godly character in response to God's word. Bringing the children up in the knowledge that it's, it's God's grace that they've been born into a Christian family. That is a blessing for them. And secondly, they've been brought up to know that God's word addresses them too as we've even seen today. They need to take responsibility for their lives as God's creatures too. In some, Paul calls children to obey and that can be an expression of their childlike faith being filled with the spirit expressed in obedience to their parents. We move on now to the section on fathers. In verse 4, fathers do not exasperate your children, instead bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. The call not to exasperate or to provoke them to anger reminds us of the, the special nature of fathers and the responsibility they have not to uh, crush their children but to take into account their limits and to care for them. This is fathers needing to remember that they're not in commando training with their kids but instead to bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord involves teaching them about the Lord Jesus Christ and how he calls his people to live. It can be an interesting dance to foster more maturity and growth in children without provoking them to anger. On the one hand, we can give in to them when they say, I don't want to go to swimming lessons. And if we don't want to provoke them to anger, we say, okay, no worries. But on the other hand, there's a problem that goes with that. If they don't learn to swim, there's a bigger possibility they'll, they'll drown. And so it can be difficult. That can be an interesting dance to encourage more maturity and yet not provoke to anger. But I suppose the key here is at least if a, a father can be aware that the possibility of provoking to anger is a reality, he can be hopefully more thoughtful and calmer in the way that he approaches the children and he can encourage them in their walk in the Lord <clears throat> which brings me to the final section of a fairly already long sermon slaves and masters and I'll say less about this section because as Scott reminded he preached a year ago on the parallel passage from Colossians uh, from this topic and so I commend that sermon to you to listen to, which has got similar things to be said about this section. But I will say a few things in closing. We've read the section in, in the Bible reading from Tara. Thanks, Tara. So I'm just going to offer a couple of comments as we close this sermon. Firstly, Paul addresses people in the first century in the situations that they're in. This is a household where this is... Uh, law in their society and this is where they found themselves but he also gives uh, slave trading amongst a list of sins in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 10 so that's how he he thinks about slave trading and the institution it's a it's in a list of sins 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this to the slaves, Were you a slave when you were called? Don't let it trouble you, although if you can gain your freedom, do so. So in this section, Paul doesn't offer comments on the institution of slavery, but he calls on both slaves and masters to carry out their lives supremely serving the Lord. And he reminds them of their accountability to their master in heaven. Suffice to say that here are some principles to apply for us as well today with respect to industrial relations to the extent that both employees and employers would do well to remember that above all, they are serving the Lord as well in their efforts. But it's also worth noting there's substantial differences between today's employees and employers than there was between the slaves and the masters. To start with, employment terms are negotiated and they can be agreed upon by, with the employees and the employers. Employees are not owned by their employers but are paid for specific service. And furthermore, there are some employees who are also shareholders in the organisations they work for and they take a share of the firm's income. In sum, there's substantial differences between employees and employers and the slaves and masters, but certainly the principles of serving the Lord is the overriding message here to God's people. In closing, it's worth noting that in this fallen world, in our sin, we will fail. We will fail in all of these areas. We'll fail in submission. We'll fail in loving. We'll fail in being obedient. And parents will at times provoke their children to anger. And we will be forgetful of who we are serving. And as we fail and fall short and sin in these areas that we're called to, to lift in and to grow in godliness in, it's important for us to remember that God also knows that, that Jesus bore our sin in our place and rose again to give us new life with God as God's people. And we can find some comfort that even as we blunder on through life and and make our own feeble attempts to grow in godliness and also make a mess and, and fail away, we can be grateful to know that God, God knows and he cares for us and he's provided forgiveness for us in Christ and there's a great deal of comfort in that. I'll bring us back to the porcupines now and we'll wrap this up. As we think about the porcupines that I mentioned earlier at the start of the talk, we remember that it was, it was tricky for them to get close together without kind of killing each other a bit and we remember that it, it can be a wonderful thing to be together as a church and as families but it can also be tricky when we get too close to each other as well but Paul's laid down some words for us today to, to put into action to show what spirit-filled lives will look like within a household context this is the way to live as God's people this is God's way, and it is the best way for us to live. And it's a way to live to bring glory to God too. So may we ask God to help us in that process and, um, and live out how he's called us to live. Let us pray. 
Lord God, we give you thanks for your word which guides us in life. It helps orient us to think about uh, life your way, which is also the best way to live. Lord, we give you thanks for Jesus and for his willing sacrifice, that he loved his church so much that he gave up his life for her, that we might enjoy forgiveness of our sins and life with you. And Lord, we pray that as we, um, as we seek to live your new way, uh, we pray that you'd help us to, um, to make some small changes to, to grow in godliness. We pray for your help to do that and the resolve to maintain that, that process. And we thank you for the forgiveness of sins when we, we fall short of that. But Lord, we give you thanks for this word and this challenge today and we pray that you'd help us to be mindful of these things and just to grow a little more today in our resolve uh, to live for your glory. And we give you thanks that through your spirit you help us to do that. We thank you for this, these good words from Ephesians this morning and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, thanks.